make a book recommendation this morning, and it has to do with the season. Uh, even though it's sunny outside, most of our weeks right now are a little cloudy, a little rainy, a little dreary. And there may be some of you who tend towards getting the blues when this, when this season rolls around. I don't know. Uh, I think the answer is probably yes. But there's a little book by David Murray. It's 95 pages long. It's not very long at all. It's a very helpful little booklet. It's called Christians Get Depressed Too. Uh, it's by David Murray. He, uh, David Murray, well, he's, first of all, he's Scottish. You can tell for us just from the last name. Uh, and uh, what would be the, well, he's a professor of Old Testament at Puritan Reform Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so he's written quite a few books. And I've always found him helpful. For years I read his blog, although I don't read it anymore. But anyway, this is a good little book and it might be helpful to you. He surveys some of the different counseling approaches. He talks about some of the strengths. Uh, and he talks about, he gives you a little bit of an idea about how to think about if you're depressed, what might be the causes of it. He talks about the extremes you want to avoid. He says you don't want to talk strictly as if it's only physical causes, as though you are just an organism. And he says you don't want to just say that it's spiritual causes. In other words, you may not just be depressed just because um, your soul is just wrecked. It might be that there are physical causes going on in your life. It might be that there are chemical imbalances in your body. You need to be open to different possibilities of what the causes might be. So this is a good little book just to think through that issue for yourself if that's something that's going on. So I'm going to send it around. You all can take a peek at it. Decide if you uh, are interested. There you go. Yeah, he's very practical. It's not like a high-level book. It's really good for reading. Uh, I rec recommend it, and it's little and cheap. I think you can get it for like $2 on Kindle all the time. How many of you guys read on Kindle? I want to know who reads Kindle books besides me. Yeah, I, I probably have a Kindle. I've been building a Kindle library since the mid-2000s, and I think I have over 1,000 books now in my Kindle library. Sometimes the books will go on sale on Kindle, and I'll be like, ooh, I better get that. It's only $2. And then it'll say, you already purchased this book. So, <laughs> yeah. This is very common for me. It's so common now. So I have all these books that I'm not reading is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, I still, I have to have more. I'm going to accumulate them all. So... Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about the book of Amos. We're in the, we're in the uh, Old Testament Minor Prophets now. Uh, we will see if we get to both. We're going to do Amos and Obadiah. Obadiah is such a long book, 21 whole verses. Uh, but there's still some things for us to say about Obadiah. Um, so the book of Amos. Amos is a shepherd. That is his profession. Uh, you see it in the very first words of the book of Amos. It says the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So his readers know about the earthquake. You and I do not know about the earthquake. This is something that uh, is part of the events, but it's not something that we necessarily have an intimate connection with. Uh, the name Amos means burden bearer, bearer of burdens, somebody who carries burdens for others. Uh, and that is certainly something that this prophet did. God has a way of always making sure his prophets have the appropriate name. Um, he lived in the first half of the 8th century 
while the northern kingdom is still standing. Uh, he lived during Jeroboam II. The, the um, that would have been the, the late 700s. 795 to 753 is when Jeroboam II is ruling. Uh, he also lived during the time of King Uzziah, who's in the southern kingdom. Who remembers which prophet got called the year King Uzziah died? Isaiah. All right, so he's got overlap with Isaiah. Amos is in the... Amos is ministering in the north while Isaiah is also ministering. Um, uh, we don't know how long he served. We just aren't certain how long his, his ministry lasted. But he's from Tekoa. Tekoa is 10, 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Um, but even though he's from the south, even though he's from Jerusalem, he's preaching to the northern kingdom. So he's basically the outsider who's like, really, I have to go there? And God's like, yes, you have to go there. Um, if you think about his background, you think about his pedigree, this guy is not a prophet. He is not the son of a prophet. He is a herdsman. It says he's a, a dresser of sycamore figs. So this is just an outdoor guy. This is a guy who doesn't sit in the halls of academia in Jerusalem uh, building up his pedigrees or anything like that. He's not an academic. This is just a man that knows how to work with animals. And he knows how to mess with plants. Uh, he's, uh, he's something closer to Adam and Eve probably in the sense that he's a gardener it looks like too. Uh, at the moment when this book is written, false prophets are everywhere all over the north. Uh, as a shepherd, you know, he wasn't one of those career types who sort of makes his living as a prophet. Instead, those guys are all over the north and they're all crooks. Like they're all telling everybody what they want to hear. And Amos's job is to tell them the truth, which they don't want to hear. Um, historical situation. He lives from approximately 790. Oops, I already wrote it wrong. To 750 roundabouts. Uh, he lives during the time of Jeroboam and Uzziah. We talked about that already. So remember, at this time, uh, he, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have more wealth than they even had during the time of Solomon. So this is a, this is a very wealthy period of Israel's history. And Amos is speaking into this situation where the, the wealth actually, uh, there may be a lot of money but just because there's a lot of money out there, just because there's a lot of money flowing around does not mean that everybody in Israelite society is benefiting from that. It doesn't mean that everybody's being treated fairly. So what's going on in Jerusalem's context? Well, you actually know just from reading some of the accusations that God makes in this book, what's happening. The rich are taking advantage of the poor. They're using bribery. They're using influence. So if they have money, they basically are able to turn the system so they get more money. Um, they're taking from the poor. They're adding to their own coffers. So you've got people over there who, uh, boy, what's the word we use today? We use the word phrase wealth inequality. That's very dramatically taking place in Israel at this time. Um, not everybody in Israel gets to enjoy the prosperity, in other words. So that's, money's getting centralized, if that makes sense. Um, so let's talk about themes in this book. Theme of this book, number one, is the theme of judgment. This is something that just comes up. Every minor prophet, we get to say the theme of judgment is a big theme. Well, that's certainly the case here. Because in this book, in Amos, there's this emphasis on God's sovereignty in judgment. God is the one who's going to bring this about. God's the one that's going to punish them for the things that they've done. God is, wants to make very clear judgment's coming. 
I know that sounds like such a rote theme, right? It just sounds like such a repetitive theme that everybody knows, everybody hears, everybody knows that God is going to bring judgment. It's almost, you know, some people might think of that as a joke because, of course, it's an Old Testament book. Of course, it's going to have judgment. But think about this. Think about if punishment came and there was no interpretation of it. If nobody was explaining why this is coming upon you, uh, why these things are happening, it's actually really merciful of God to say, hey, this is coming and let me tell you why. Because not only, not only do they get it interpreted, but they actually get to at least understand why it's happening and that it really is God, that it's not like world events that just happened and then after the fact they're getting reinterpreted. How would the people at that time respect a shepherd like Amos? Well, probably not because they're going to look at him and they're going to say, look, we have these professional prophets who actually speak for God for a living. What do you know? So, I mean, you can imagine the, the way that, I mean, God ends up using all these mouthpieces. You can almost imagine that in the Northern Kingdom, there are no options. You know, I mean, everybody's lying. All these prophets are lying. So what does he do? He raises up some guy who works outside doesn't have any connections with any of this. It's actually kind of amazing because he has no dog in the fight. He doesn't particularly care. He's from the Southern Kingdom. You would think that for all intents and purposes, he's not there to manipulate because he doesn't get anything out of it. So he's just a shepherd. people in general know about what he's prophesying? Shepherds were like the dirtbags of society. Yeah. They were like the smelly, gross people that you didn't want to show up. So, I mean, it's the same thing with the annunciation uh, of the birth of Jesus, right? The first people that hear about it are the dirty outdoors people. I mean, that's that's what happens when the shepherds, yeah. God's also interested in all types of people within, right? Mm -hmm. message today. Yeah. Shepherds don't listen to those in the halls of academia. Hmm. They're, they're not interested in what professional prophets tell I me, mean, but God had shepherds in the northern kingdom who needed to repent. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, even the guys in the fields don't really have an excuse because one of their own is hearing the word too. They're all hearing it. So uh, was he wandering around or was he speaking in the temple? Well, to be honest, I'm not sure in terms of the locality of where he's going in the north to speak this message. Okay. But it is a message for the north. So he's not preaching it in Jerusalem. It, you know, it would make sense for you to preach in Jerusalem something that should be going to Samaria. Just for example. Um, another theme of this book is, and I'm going to use this word and listen, two, three years ago, this was not a dirty word. Okay. Social justice. All right. So, yeah, I know. Allergies. Uh, hiccups and sneezes all over the room. Um, so this book's older than 2020. So I'll just say that. So this book is... What do we mean when we, when we say social justice? You know, the phrase has a new meaning in American context, um, but there was a time where it was, a, I think, a noble phrase. I think that it still can be a noble phrase if it's meant well and if it's defined well. Um, but when we say social justice here, don't import modern categories, you know, bathrooms and all the drama that's come up. When we're talking about social justice, what we're talking about is God caring that we treat our neighbors well. I mean, if you really, how are you supposed to treat your neighbor? Ultimately, that's what social justice is. And it's something that Amos wants the people to know and God wants through Amos to know. They're failing at. They're failing at loving their neighbor. Um, because he's instructing people, how do you love others in society? 
And he condemns selfish behavior that tramples other people down. So what is actually happening in the book? What's actually happening is this. The wealthy people in Israel are guilty of abusing and ignoring the poor. Just as an example, they would be owed money by somebody who is poor and they would sell that person into slavery to pay their debt. And then they would be denied legal representation. These are things that you, if you just read Amos, you'll see it come out. Um, just give you an idea. Here you are. Uh, Amos 2, 6 to 7. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. So you've got somebody who's really down. And instead of going, you know, you're my brother Israelite, you're my fellow Israelite, you're somebody I should be treating better. They basically say, you know, I really don't care if this puts you into slavery or if your family goes hungry. You still owe me those shekels, you know. And instead of having mercy on your brother, you just say, I don't care. I don't care what it does to you. I don't care what happens to you. And that's what's happening in Amos, right? Uh, That's the situation that they're in. There's so much wealth. You can imagine how the mindset just gets more and more interested in further accumulation and less and less interested in the consequences for the person that you're getting it from. You think about it. On the one hand, the person could say, look, this is justice. I deserve to get the money that I'm owed. It's actually true. And then when mercy and justice sort of go against each other, the Israelites end up choosing fairness, right? They end up choosing what's good for them, but not what's good for the other person or the sort of butterfly effects it might have in that person's life and what might happen to the rest of Israel. Um, Leviticus 25 talks about redemption of property and kindness to people. Leviticus 25, you read it, actually does seem designed to prevent wealth inside of Israel from accumulating. Uh, Verse 35 talks about taking care of the poor person who's in need. Israel's not doing that. They're just, they're ignoring, they're following the parts of the law they like. They're ignoring the parts that they don't like. I mean, this is instinctive for us. We do it too. We find our favorite parts of scripture. We lean on them. Then we find the parts we don't like and we kind of ignore those. So this is just human nature 101 in a lot of ways. And yet he's saying, what does he say? Uh, He says, treat your brother like a stranger or a sojourner, right? What a telling thing to say. These guys are Israelites, so you'll treat them bad. You should treat them the way that you think you're supposed to treat a a stranger and a sojourner. Um, You treat your stranger and your sojourner well. Why don't you treat this man like he has, well, he's one of your own. Treat him like he has dignity. And so... Then in chapter 5, you get to Amos chapter 5, and uh, you look at verse 24 especially. Um, So I'll read just a few verses here from verse 18 down to maybe verse 24. Um, He pronounces these woes, just woes. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. You think the day of the Lord is going to be great. You're excited about the day of the Lord. You guys should not be excited about it, he says. Don't be excited about the day of the Lord. It's not good news for you. Uh, As if a man, uh, it is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. (laughs) It's hilarious too. It's it's terrifying. Um, Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? 
And then listen to this. There's a formality to Israel where they'll do the formal thing, but they won't do the thing that their hearts are supposed to be doing. He says, he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offering and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Where have we heard that phrase before in contemporary culture? Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, quoted this. If you read uh, the writings of Martin Luther King Jr., one of the things you find is he's, for all of his personal flaws and faults, he has a biblical mindset and he wants uh, to be taking and applying fairness across society. And he looks at a passage like this and he says, look what this passage is calling for. He's calling for us to love our neighbor. He's saying, I don't care about your formalities. I hate your formalities. I hate your feasts. I hate your songs. I hate your solemn assemblies. You guys think that you're so presentable to me because you go through all of this stuff. But you hate your brother. He says, Get rid of all that stuff. Actually stop doing the song. Stop doing the assembly. Stop playing your harp, but let justice roll down. And that's what he says. Roll it down. Let it roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So there is, some, there, there is some question here as to how we should think about this kind of a passage. Well, actually, I think that the next, that what we have here actually, um, let me see. Let me just talk about it. Yeah. Um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. called on Christians to apply this to their fellow brothers and sisters. You know, he's looking out and he's like, look, a lot of you guys are Christians. A lot of you guys should be treating your fellow citizens like they're Christians too, if they are. Um, he's your brother. Treat him like your brother. Yeah, Benjamin. Isn't the second part of the greatest commandment really play into this? Yeah, love your neighbor. As what? As yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's... So anyway, the, well, here's what I don't want. Here's what I don't want. I don't think it's healthy for us to look at a commandment like this that is given to Israel, apply it to America as a whole. I think instead what we're here, seeing here is the responsibility of Christians to fellow Christians because the church is Israel, if I can just put it really bluntly. Um, the church is God's people. America is not God's people. Um, in America, God's people are here. And we should treat one another like we're God's people. We should treat one another like fellow Israelites. Uh, But that does not mean, I don't think, that the United States as a whole should take a passage like Amos and necessarily be held to it. Instead, Christians need to be asking what their responsibility is to their fellow believer. Um, Another theme of the book is covenant and remnant, right? The idea here is that God is faithful to his covenant promises. He's going to bring curses on people for not keeping his covenant Uh, just like he said he would. Um, He will keep his promises, but he also talks about the fact that there's going to be a restoration. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, In fact, let's just look at this. I want to go to chapter six, just to look at one, just to give special attention to one section here that I think is so interesting. And, and I think it applies to us. I think it, it's, when I say it applies, all of it applies, but there are some that just feel really pointed. So if you look at chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, he has this woe that he speaks. And he says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. 
So he's addressing, he's pronouncing a woe on people who feel so secure that they're not worried about themselves, they're not worried about their families, they're not worried about their nation. So what have they done? They've kind of learned to compartmentalize in the extreme, right? There's utter devastation going on, there's utter devastation coming, and then in verse 3 it says, but they put far away the day of disaster. You know, we saw that just a little bit ago in chapter 2, right? People who say they're yearning for the day of the Lord, they can't wait for it to come. And then here he says, yet they put away the day of disaster. In other words, there's some sense of denial. They're sort of in denial about it, what's really going to happen. Um, and so they're just kind of deceived. Uh, and, then he, and then he talks about this woe oracle that who it's aimed at. And who is it aimed at? It's aimed at the people who are at ease in Zion. Um, woe to the elite in Samaria, to those surrounded by comforts. Verse 4, he says, those who lie on beds of ivory. Now, I don't know. I wouldn't want to sleep on ivory, but maybe that's a soft thing. I don't know. I'm not, a, not an expert in, in ivory. All right. It's the bed frame. Yeah, maybe. So, so, so God mentions other nations here. He mentions Kalna and Hamath and, and Gath. Israel's not better than those nations. He says that in verse 2. He says, you're not better than these other nations. He says, you're like those other nations. And then, and then in fact, when Assyria comes, the elites are the first ones that they take. The, the people who felt the most secure are the ones that got dragged away first. Uh, so here's where I think this connects with us. Entertainments, comforts, and pleasures have a way of making us lose touch with reality. They have a way of making us apathetic. Um, I mean, what has, what have the last two years been? Everybody watching dozens of hours of Netflix, just <laughs> it's escape, right? Um, because that's what we feel like we have to do. What, what, what has to happen? We have to escape. We can't live with the way things are. So let's escape. Um, how many of you have ever read, I don't have a physical copy. I'm, I'm digital on everything. Uh, how many of you ever read Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman? How many of you found it helpful? Yeah. So in the book, it's funny because he's like, he's like the radio. Uh, you know, he's talking a lot about the radio and the tube television and stuff. So you kind of know when he's writing. Um, but he, he's very prescient and he's very thoughtful about what's coming. And one of the things that he talks about in this book is that television, you can just let internet just take the place of television. Uh, internet, television, entertainment, and media would make us unable to think in the future. But then he says, basically, how does that happen? And he basically takes these two worlds that everybody's so afraid of happening, and he compares them to each other. When you're talking about dystopia, what are the books that people think of when they think, oh, boy, I really don't want the future to be like this? What's the one book everybody was reading this last couple of years? 1984. Everybody's so afraid of 1984. And, and Neil Postman says, yes, I'm well aware. Everybody's afraid of 1984. They think Big Brother's coming and they think that he's going to, to grab hold of our brains and make us think his way and talk his way uh, and control our lives and imprison us when we don't think like he wants to. But he said this, he said, what if the future isn't a dictator telling us what to do? What if the future is like the one Aldous Huxley predicted in Brave New World? How many of you are familiar with Brave New World? So in Brave New World, it's basically a drugged up society where everybody is entertained in the extreme and doesn't really care about what's really happening, right? And, and he said, 
that is by far the more realistic picture of the future, right? Where we are perpetually drugged and distracted to death, and we don't care what happens around us as long as we're satisfied. And he said, that is the future we should be far more concerned about because he said, that's what television's going to do to us. Now, again, I'll just say internet, you know. Um, all of these things, by the way, can be good if they're used well. But, you know, you, if you think about largely what a most of American society looks like, probably not using it well, you know. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of cat videos out there, um, which I've watched a few, maybe. Um, so, so Israel, though, is somewhere between Orwell and Huxley here, right? Because, because much of Israel is, what are they doing? They're living in the lap of luxury. They're, they're numbed. They're uninterested in how things are going for the other half. What sort of judgment's coming? They are amusing themselves to death. Yes, Joe Ash. A good example of being between Orwell and Huxley is Fahrenheit 451 yeah. by Bradbury. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, so there you go. Why didn't, why didn't uh, Neil Postman do that? I don't know. I'm really disappointed in Neil. <laughs> Um, actually, it might be because I don't know if Bray Bad- Bradbury had written that by the time Amusing Ourselves to Death was written. So, it was like 53. Okay, that would have been before. So here's the thing. Um, do you think this speaks to our own day, this idea of just being so amused that you don't care what's going on? Like, <laughs> the rise of addiction. There's a rise of addiction. It's escape. It's, it's escape, exactly. Addictions in all their forms, right? We cope. Let's cope. How are we going to cope? Let's find some way that we can do it on our own. Let's do it with balance. Let's, 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 be, let's be balanced about it. Let's not go over the top, right? Let's just try to find a way to feel better. Let's make ourselves feel better. And so we can relate to a distracted, entertainment-obsessed populace, right? Um, many people in our moment do not care what life is like for their fellow citizens, and part of it is that they have chosen escape, They've chosen to escape. Now, that might sound really grim, and it is, and it should be. Um, but the end of the book of Amos actually gives us a glimmer of hope. And, and this is just something that's so, so predictable in the minor prophets. But you want it. You actually need it. Please let this predictable thing come. Uh, you get a glimmer of hope, even as the book is basically saying things are bad, things are bad, judgment's coming, things are bad. And they're going to be bad. Like it, it doesn't minimize. And then at the end, it says, in spite of the fact that this punishment's coming, this judgment's coming, that it's really going to happen, I'm going to do this with you. And so look in at verses 11 to 15 of chapter 9. Uh, he says, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grains, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. But you do have to get through all the other stuff to get here. <laughs> and they don't just have to read it. They have to go through it. They're, it's coming. 
And so uh, there's this shift here at the end of the book from, from woe to promise and restoration. He says, I'm going to raise up the temple of David, right? I'm going to raise up the temple of Christ that's fallen. Um, he says, all the nations who are called by my name. What does that imply? That implies what we talked about, what Micah just alluded to a minute ago, and what I talked about in the sermon, the idea that there are Gentile nations who are out there who are going to come when the temple of David is raised up. So we're talking about a prediction of Jesus being raised up. And when that happens, creation is going to be restored. That's what it's talking about when it talks about the plowman overtaking the reaper. Um, All of this is really saying that creation is going to be brought back to what it should be in the beginning. Um, In other words, God's mercy truly gets revealed in the midst of judgment. This is what happens with Jesus, right? Jesus goes to the cross. And what are you seeing at the cross? You're seeing the judgment of God. You're seeing that it, was, that it was not a fake, that it was real. You're seeing that God's judgment isn't a paper tiger, that it actually is real and that it does happen and that someone has to face the judgment. And you see the mercy of God in the exact same moment because all of that is Christ receiving what his people deserve. So mercy and judgment coming together. That's what the end of Amos is portending for us. That's what he's getting us ready for. That's what he's getting his readers ready for. So yeah, you hate the, the, the prophets who come and bring bad news. But when they speak truly, then they don't, then there's good there. There's hope there. Yeah, Micah. I have a question on how you read this last section in Amos. Mm-hmm. Uh, so start, verse 11 and 12 says, In that day I'll raise the booth of David that's fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it. As in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Uh, do you read that as the uh, advent of our Lord and his death and resurrection as a reality that started then or reality that started at his second coming? I see it as something that happens when he's born. When he's raised up, I think it's a resurrection conversation. Sure. So then when you go to verse 13, 14, 15, and it talks about the days coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treasure of grapes, him who sows the seed and the mountain shall drip sweet wine. Mm-hmm. Is that a present reality we see unfolding today as the church grows and manifests and salvation is declared to the ends of the world? Or is that a hope that we will not see happen until God returns in a second. I think it's happening now. I mean, I I don't think you can see a break here between the resurrection of Jesus and these things taking place. That doesn't mean they don't happen gradually. It doesn't mean that they don't happen progressively. Uh, And it doesn't mean that we're never living in the already not yet. I mean, we're in between right now. So we're going to have disappointments. These things are going to happen in fits and starts. But ultimately, yeah, all this stuff is going to take place. So that, that mustard tree is growing. Yeah, yeah. It would be weird to think that that stuff only happens after not the resurrection, but the second coming. Then all those things get to start happening. But it's like, no, when it says when, when the, the booth of David gets raised up, then those things are going to be rebuilt. Um, and yeah. We'll make post-millennial life again. No, you might make me an optimistic millennialist. <laughs> optimistic. <laughs> Um, but we have 10 minutes to talk about a very short book, the book of Obadiah. What's that? 30 seconds per verse. And a great little transition here. It did say they may possess the remnant of Edom. So let's talk about Edom. Uh, Obadiah. 
the shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, Very little debate over who the author of the book is. We don't know a lot about Obadiah. The book is introduced simply as the vision of Obadiah. Pretty common name in Old Testament times. This would not have been uh, necessarily a standout name. Uh, The question is, who is is Edom? Because Edom is very important to this book. Because this is basically a book that is written to Edom. This is a book that's not written to uh, somebody inside of Israel. This is Edom. Who is that? Well, they were southeast of the Dead Sea. These are descendants of Esau. So if you remember Jacob and Esau, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. You remember Esau, then you'll remember that these, these people took up residence there near the Dead Sea. Um, they had no formal place in Israel, although they maintained their own dignity, district, uh, distinct land, their own distinct family. But they did have a history with Israel. The biggest thing that happened is in the book of Numbers chapter 20, Israel is ready to pass through the land of Edom. And what does Edom say? No. You cannot come through our land. They're like, and, and actually I was reading it yesterday and it was really heartbreaking because it's almost like a family member talking to another family member. Like, won't you just let me walk through? And they're like, no. They're like, we crossed the desert to get here. Please just let us go. No. And just over and over again. Uh, pretty cold. That's a cold relationship between these people groups. So during the reign of the Syrians and the Babylonians, the Edomites are vassals to the empire. In other words, they're like their servants. They basically do what they want. They pay taxes. They answer to ultimately to the Babylonians and the Syrians. And they did what they wanted. And so after Jerusalem gets crushed and after um, the walls are broken down and after the temple is destroyed... They helped dismantle Jerusalem after the fall of the southern kingdom. So if you remember, is it 585, I think, where the third deportation happens and Israel basically is completely wiped. It might be 587. I might have my numbers scrambled. But they all get basically get evacuated out of Jerusalem. And what happens? Well, someone has to take this city apart. Somebody has to part this place out. And that's what the Edomites do. So the Edomites come and they take the place apart. They strip it down. They take what they want. Pretty, again, pretty cold relationship between these two sons of, um, sons of Jacob. So probably written in the 6th century after 586. Reason for this is that Obadiah is condemning Edom for its raids. Means that it's probably done between 586 and 553. That's probably when this book is, is written. So it's a later book of all the Old Testament books. You're talking about very, very tail end probably near the writing of Malachi as well. Uh, Major theme of this book, I guess I could write Obadiah up here. Not that you need it at this point. Major theme of this book is the lex talionis, that's the law of retribution. Um, In a sense, what, what, what God is doing is he's holding Edom to the standards of Genesis chapter nine. What is that? That's the basis. I I talked about this when we did Genesis last year. But that's sort of the basis of of natural law. Even Edom, even though they don't have God's written law, they have God's law written on their heart. And they know from uh, the, the covenant that God made with Noah, with all of creation, that they're responsible before God to treat their fellow man well, that they're they're not supposed to exploit another person, that there's rights of property ownership. There are things that you can draw out of Genesis chapter 9. All of those things are a basis for God looking at Edom and saying, no, you didn't violate Deuteronomy so-and-so. 
but you did violate my law. He, you know, he wouldn't point to chapter and verse, but he would say, you know, these things that you did are wrong. You did these things to your own brother. They're wrong. And so he's speaking to them now and he's telling them what they already ought to know. So what Edom has done by raiding Israel and take advantage is going to come back on them. If you read verse 16, it says, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So they're going to receive what they have dished out. What they're willing to do, they're going to have done to them. And so there's this, there's this truth about universal retribution, right? God does not just wink at sin. That was one of the things I remember R.C. Sproul saying all the time. God does not wink at sin. Uh, if we have sinned, something has to happen with that sin. Somebody has to answer or God is not a good judge. And so Edom is going to face that. But then, what's so beautiful, and you can probably predict it, you can see it coming already, is uh, that there is a promise of restoration, right? It's a promise of restoration for the remnant of Israel at the conclusion of the book. Now, I know that that's repetitive. That is on purpose. When you're going through the major and the minor prophets, redemption is by design. It is God's, it is on purpose that God is always reminding Israel that once they are restored, it's this pre- it, that it was predicted repeatedly. You know, it's almost that repetition almost makes it so certain. It almost makes it something that, wow, I shouldn't have missed this the first time around. Um, hearing it repeated should drill it into our head that these things are true um, and that hard times aren't a reason to lose hope. Uh, that's what the death of Jesus is, right? The death of Jesus is the darkest, harshest, most unjust thing that ever happened in all of human history. And if someone had looked at the death of Jesus the moment that it happened, they would have said, this is it. This is the end. The hope is gone. Uh, you know, if Good Friday was the last day of your life on this earth, you would, you would have, you know, it would have been a very sad moment unless you heard Jesus say, I'm going to rise again. Um, so don't let <clears throat> the repetition um, after judgment ever strike you as old news, as same old, same old, or maybe what I said this morning, this is not baby food. Um, this is not just, oh, yeah, this is what we, we all know. This is, a big, this is a big deal. It's a big deal that God is going to take this fallen people, and he's still going to uh, reverse course. He's still going to bring salvation. I think the reason this message that Israel is going to be restored is still good for the Edomites is exactly what we saw in the last book. Because Edom gets brought in, and Edom gets to participate along with the other nations. They get to receive the same salvation that's offered to everybody else. So that means that this book, even though it's full of very harsh words for Edom, it's still good news for them, right? The restoration of Israel is good news for every nation, even Babylon, for that matter. So, three minutes. Any other comments or questions? (laughs) Try to move really fast through these books, but I'm always happy to answer questions if we have any. Hearing none... I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we will, we'll be ready for those kids. When they walk in, we will scare them. <laughs> they won't scare us. That's, that's what we'll do. We'll just hide and jump out, you know. It'll be hilarious. So funny. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth that you do judge sin. That is actually a blessing. Because now we know that you are a good judge. And when we look at Christ, Lord, knowing that we have been set free from our own sin, 
we know that there was a heavy price that was paid. We know that restoration is not free and it is not cheap. And so we thank you, O God, for your kindness. We thank you for your restoration of your people. We thank you, O God, that you rescue people from every tribe and tongue and nation. We ask that you would help us to pray for such people. We pray that you would help us to love those, Lord, who don't know you. Help for us to see them as sheep without a shepherd and help our hearts to go out to our neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.